From email to Zoom to apps like Slack, it's harder than ever to escape work. In today's episode, we're talking about work-life balance and how for mental wellness, it really should be about integrating work into life. So this episode stems actually from a mass email that I got from one of the CEOs at LinkedIn. And it was about the great resignation and the great migration. And it was essentially talking about how employees were leaving their jobs as companies were going back to work full time or in the office some 40 hours a week. And people were just saying, I can't do it. I'm not doing it and actually quitting their jobs. And it was largely because of their mental wellness or the balance that they had been able to find when they were working remotely. Yeah, like navigating. They they like finally like navigated through figuring out how to like live life with this this pandemic and work. And, you know, and they we've all made a lot of changes, right? Mm-hmm. As a result of it. And then all of a sudden it, it was like a it was like a light switch, right? That next thing, you know, people are getting vaccinated, so we're going to go back to the office. And I remember talking to my dad. Um, he's an attorney. And I was talking to him, and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, by the fall, we'll be back um, in court, you know, doing our, our regular stuff. And I just kept thinking to myself, how are people going to do that? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Anyway, so when you sent this article to me, I, of course, you know, anything you send, like, article, I'm like, ooh, I wonder what, you know, I'm always excited because I know it's going to be something I like. And I had no idea. I had not heard of the Great Migration uh-huh. or the Great Resignation. And from there, just kind of went down went down the rabbit hole well it really spoke to me for two reasons one people were doing it like i said largely for their mental wellness and for their own health and for their family and work-life balance but it also i was like wow i cannot believe that as a society we have gotten to this point where we are caring enough about our personal lives and our work-life balance to actually quit our job. Yeah. And I, I think it's a really a good thing. And it's something that I don't think ever would have happened had companies not been forced to go remotely. Yeah. I mean, th- there are many, many professions that can't go remote, right? But there are also many where I think that the companies, and, and I definitely have you know, worked for some in the past that I think that they would have never accepted a hybrid schedule or definitely not a fully remote schedule because there was just, the culture was about being physically present in the office. I do have to say though, we can credit COVID for us, for people finally getting the nerve to start to put their health and their mental wellness first. But I think we also need to credit millennials because before COVID, I feel like it was millennials and we like, we likely made fun of them, but it was millennials that were the first generation to say, nope, this job isn't good for my work. I'm out of here. You know, And, and, and generations above them never would have had that nerve. No, definitely not. I mean, now I'm not talking about necessarily like, you know, having a masseuse in the office or whatever, although that would be lovely. But the concept of, you know, dedicated vacation time and some built-in f- flexibility and like those those kind of perks above and beyond health insurance and 401k matching that I feel like you and I were very much like, yeah. you know, trained that, that like that was what you 
that was yeah. what you got from a job and that was all you got from yeah. a job. Um, yeah. Really the benefits that millennials were wanting, I think, was more flexibility in hindsight. Well, and more They didn't care life. as much, yeah, about the like, growing cake. Yeah, yeah, more life. More life. Like, fitting work into their life, not, you know, jamming life you know, into their work. Well, and that was our big takeaway, I think, or one of my big takeaways from the guest we're having today or interviewing. Um, she she does not like the term um, necessarily work-life balance. Right. She's pretty focused on work-life integration. And then at one point we started talking about flipping that term on its head and talking about life-work integration. Yeah. So, you know, we are concerned about having some balance. But we are still, most of us are coming at it from this perspective of trying to fit life into work. Yeah. And really, you know, we should be trying to fit work into life. I mean, I still think that for some people, fitting life into work is a big step, right? And and I think about it from the perspective of, you know, I sometimes have a very hard time sharing. When I was working in an office, Mm -hmm. I had a very hard time sharing what was going on in my life outside of work at work. But you had a very close-knit office. That surprises me. Yeah, but it was was like that level of humanization that I was not ready to to incorporate, right? Like I wanted to be productive and successful and I wanted to be taken seriously. And I mean, you and I talk about it now about how sometimes – we don't even necessarily share the whole story if we need to alter a deadline or something that we don't necessarily share the whole story with whomever our client is at the risk of, I actually at the risk of what? I don't know. But but anyway, so I do think that for some people, integrating life into work is the, is the first step. Yeah, so and maybe not, 2.0 is. I'm not saying I do it at all. I am just saying I, it was kind of an aha, like, yeah, Carolyn, that's where you should, that should be your goal. Yes. You may never get there, but you just, your goal should be focusing on integrating work into your life. Yeah. And that was just, that was one of my big takeaways. But I'm so excited to share this interview with Jen Fisher. She has done a lot of research. She's so knowledgeable in just the concept of the workplace technology in the workplace and how that keeps us on the clock longer, yeah. even though we aren't really getting credit for it, but we're scared not to respond. Yeah. <laughs> um, and relationships and relationships within the workplace, but then also how all of it affects your mental wellness. Right. Exactly. And she is always so good at reminding us that most of us spend most of our waking hours at work, not at home um, and not with our family. And so if you are going to be in if you were going to spend that many hours somewhere, you need to you need to be mentally well there. You need to have purpose. You need to have satisfaction. And you need to have an environment and a relationship with the people that you work with that brings you joy and satisfaction. And, of course, like difficulties. And as she said, yes, you can still disagree. It's not, you know, everybody needs to be super merry mm-hmm. all the time. But that that cultivating that in the workplace is very important. And she does a nice job of touching on how technology actually can detract from that. And there's a lot in her book um, that that touches on the fact that technology 
yes, it is an amazing thing. And in some ways it's allowed us to continue business during the pandemic, but also when it's not used appropriately or when you don't add in other layers of humanness, it leads to kind of like a, just unhealthy an unhealthy habits. habit and unhealthy workplace and burnout and mental illness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's jump into the interview. Yes. I can't wait to introduce y'all to our next guest. Jen Fisher is Deloitte's first chief well-being officer. She's a leading voice on workplace well-being and creating human-centered organizational cultures. She's a sought-after speaker and writer on the importance of mental health and social connection to workforce resilience, happiness, and productivity. Jen is the work-life integration editor-at-large for Thrive Global and the host of Work Well, a podcast series on the latest work-life trends. She's also the author or co-author of the best-selling book, Work Better Together, How to Cultivate Strong Relationships to Maximize Well-Being and Boost Bottom Lines. Jen, thank you so much for being here. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for our conversation today. Us too. Absolutely. Yeah. And congratulations on on getting that best-selling <laughs> component of your book. That's huge. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty awesome. I think I'm I'm still processing what those emotions are supposed to feel like, but it's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, first, I, I was so intrigued when I got your bio. I was so intrigued when Briarly mentioned, tell me a little bit about you. Um, and she mentioned that you were the chief well-being officer. And then I saw it again in your bio. I am so <laughs> intrigued. What exactly does that mean? And what do you do? Yeah, it's a question I get often because there is, there's not many of us. Um, we are few and mighty, but there are more and more organizations that are um, focusing on the health and well-being of their workforce um, in, in a much more meaningful way, which I am happy to see. And so I'm hopeful that there will be many more chief well-being officers in, in the years to come. But, you know, essentially my responsibility is to help set the strategy, create the strategy, um, design the programs, tools, and resources that we provide to Deloitte's people um, to help them really stay healthy and, and well in their whole lives. Uh, if, I, if I peel that back, though, I will tell you that my day-to-day -day role and things that I spend my time on I, are much more closely linked to culture and culture change. And so I think that this is a really important component because when I talk to a lot of leaders at other organizations, um, many whom, um, with all the best intentions, invest in a lot of programs and tools and resources for their workforce to take care of themselves, but they find that the workforce isn't taking advantage of them. And so the number one question that I have for people is, well, have you looked at your culture? And have you looked at longstanding cultural norms that have, and, and some of those are spoken um, and, and most of them are unspoken. And so norms and ways that people are working or perceptions of what is expected of me um, that haven't been openly stated that are actually keeping people from taking advantage of the, the tools and resources that you provide to them. And I think that that's a really important point because people want to know, they wanna know that they have permission, um, which sounds a little funny, right? You shouldn't need permission to take care of yourself. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
but in the work yeah. in the workplace people want to know that if they step away if they take the time to do what matters most to them in life that it's something that's going to be celebrated by the organization versus something that's going to hold me back in terms of my progression in the organization and um and, and i think that for for all of us um we want to know that the things that we do are, are valued by our employer and so looking at culture um is where i spend and, and culture change and how do you change mindsets which change behavior which then change culture especially in an organization as large as Deloitte that has been around for a long time. Um, so we have a lot of cultural norms that at the time they were created were all well-intentioned, but because the way that we work and the expectations of our workforce has changed so much that we need to regularly revisit those and make sure that you know why the reasons why they were created are still having the positive impact that we intended them to. And if they aren't, how do we go about changing those to a way, you know, to something that is uh, much more useful and beneficial to our workforce? It's interesting the way that you explained employees taking advantage of what is being offered to them, where you where you said that it is something <clears throat> that needs to be celebrated, not something that is going to hold you back. And I, you know, it's been a little while since I've worked in you know, an office corporate culture. Uh, but, but that's absolutely a feeling that, that I remember. And I wouldn't say that it was a direct result of the company so much as just probably how I had been uh, trained for lack of a better word over the years. Yeah. Um, but what I wanted to ask was, you know, can you give us an example of how you're seeing the workplace culture needing to shift? Like, is there, is there something that when you either look at Deloitte or when you talk to other companies and leaders at other companies where you're saying like, okay, this is kind of, you know, a key sticking point culturally that would really make a big difference? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think, you know, we have all been reading about, hearing about, and perhaps in our own organizations dealing with the great resignation, right? And so if you peel back the layers on what the great resignation is all about, it is the workforce telling their employer that, you know, and in large part, it's it's not about money for people. What people are saying is, I want a diff I want a different life. What matters to me is different than what my employer is providing, right? And what I value is different than what my the opportunity that my employer is providing. And so I think it has to do with um, you know wanting to work for organizations that care for me as a whole person, right? I mean, we used to have this mindset that we go to work and work is work, right? But you but but work and life are literally, you know, especially now, kind of sitting on top of each other in the same room all day, every day for those people that are working remotely. But, you know, we talk about in our book, Work Better Together, the importance of, of workplace social connection and relationships. And a lot of that has been removed from the workplace, right? Um, but it's where we spend the majority of our time is working adults in any given day. And so, um, you know, I think people are looking for, for meaning and purpose in the work that they do. They're looking to work for an organization that cares about them as a whole person. They're looking for autonomy and flexibility in terms of making decisions about when, where, and how they work within, obviously there's constraints within cer certain businesses. If I reflect on, 
you know, Deloitte's business, right? We're in the client service business. And so, you know, we do have to be available and responsive, responsive to our clients um, in order for the business to thrive. But, you know, outside of those times where I need to be online and engaged with my team or co-located with my team, you know, knowing that that I have the support of the organization to pursue things outside of work um, that aren't going to be viewed as somehow I'm less committed or less loyal to the organization. And so I think that's the workforce speaking very loudly <laughs> to organizations and organizational leaders to say, hey, we want a much more human workplace that cares about us as a human being. And that is not just about how much more productive we can be. Um, I think the fourth industrial revolution has done a disservice to human beings, right? You know, technology, and we talk a lot about this in the book. Technology is great. You know, my co-author and I are not, you know, technology haters, but what the fourth industrial revolution has done or our perception of it has created a lot of fear around technology and AI and what, what that means for humans. And so instead of celebrating the fact that technology and AI is going to is and will be taking over kind of some of the more routine jobs and allowing us to actually be more human, right? Celebrate what makes us human in the workplace. Celebrate the fact that computers don't need to sleep, but human beings do. And if we sleep, we're going to be incredibly high performers in a way that's sustainable and we'll be able to show up and be compassionate and empathetic and complex problem solvers and develop deep and meaningful relationships. All the things that we know that that human beings were basically, I mean, it's its kind of the core of who we are, but we've removed that in a lot of ways from the workplace and we've created a lot of fear around, um, you know, technology and always needing to be on and, you know, basically in, in my in my own words, kind of competing, competing with our technology as opposed to using the technology in a way that really enhances or augments who we are as human beings. Can you give just a quick, in your words, like what, the fourth industrial revolution is for listeners who may not have read your book or may not be familiar with that exact terminology. Yeah. So, um, you know, the fourth industrial revolution essentially kind of in the way that I'm talking about it, but it is really the, you know, the, the, um, time period where, um, technology and the use of machines has kind of become, ubiquitous or has is part of of um, our everyday life and our everyday work um, and it and it revolutionized in many many ways the way that we've done things right and there's been a lot I mean there's a ton of positives to that right <laughs> um, yes. it's not meant to say that the fourth industrial revolution is is a bad thing because it's not if you think about the advances in in healthcare if you think about the fact that you know, we we do have the ability to be connected all the time and to work remotely. And, you know, all of these things were kind of made possible by technology and um, and this this huge revolution of what, you know, of 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 technology kind of embedded into every aspect of our life. It that said, it also happened a lot quicker than any other revolution in human history. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, 
And interestingly, so because of the fourth industrial revolution, we were able to continue forward in many ways from a business standpoint when the pandemic hit, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so in that sense, it, you know, it is wonderful. But going back to the downsides of it, I mean, there are so many, uh, so many downsides. What do you feel like was the change within the industrial revolution that really pushed it maybe more towards an unhealthy work-life balance? Was it email in the workplace? Was it iPhones where email came in? Or, or what do you really feel like pushed the revolution to an unhealthy place? Well, I, I mean, I think it, it's probably, it's probably a lot of things, right? Um, I, you know, the, it, it, you know, we have adopted and adopted and adopted technology into our lives in every aspect of our lives, but we just haven't adapted to it very well. Um, and so the, the ways in which a lot of our technology is designed, um, is designed to get and keep our attention. It's an attention economy. Um, and so, you know, even the flows of our email and the way things come into our inbox and, you know, the, the, you know, the, the pings and the dings and the notifications and the badges and all of that is designed and based in much the same way that slot machines are designed, <laughs> right? <laughs> Gosh, when you put it that way, it makes me want to throw my phone in the ocean. Kind of is. You know, so like, but yeah. slot machines are designed to, you know, keep getting you to put money into them, right? Well, and so and if you think about, yeah. if you think about our attention as money, that's exactly what it is, right? And so, um, and, and, you know, and again, we had, we adopted technology into our life so quickly that, and we want to live in this overly connected world because there are a lot of benefits to it, but we just haven't adapted to it. Meaning we, you know, in my own words, I think the technology is using us. We're not using the technology. And so we need to change that dynamic and we need to change it yesterday. <laughs> and how does that translate to the workplace and kind of fear in the workplace? I mean, to your point, Carolyn, you know, back in the old days you know you would go to work and you would leave work and you would come home and on a very 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 rare occasion you might get a call at home because something you know on your landline mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> at home because something happened at work but what you know the the same technologies that allow us to work remotely have also allowed us to be always connected to work and we haven't done a very good job of you know setting uh, boundaries as individuals but also I think organizations have a huge role to play like it, you know Brené Brown says clear is kind and I think when it comes to workplace expectations and our use of technology clear is kind what are the expectations at Deloitte we talk about you know team behaviors and norms we talk about this in the book too um, that the the biggest you know the the people that have the biggest positive or negative impact on your well-being in the workplace are the people that you work most closely with day in day out that you know that's not mind-blowing right <laughs> that that's pretty obvious and so getting together as a team and saying what do we want our workplace norms to look like you know what do we want our standard working hours to be where we can all generally expect to kind of be online be reach reachable within a reasonable period amount of time you know and what does it look like 
when we're outside of working hours because don't leave that up to email if we need to get in touch with each other because then everybody does feel like they constantly have to be checking email mm -hmm. you know is there do i call you do i text you is there some other collaboration platform that we use and so I think part of the problem, you know, the technology itself isn't bad. Technology is not bad or good. It's how we as humans have have chosen to use the technology and the lack of clarity in the workplace around when and how to use the technology and what the expectations are of me that keeps people feeling like they have to be constantly connected because no one wants to be the person that responds last or responds the next day or you know like nobody there's there's a fear around okay well if i don't reply in 10 seconds flat is my boss gonna think that i'm less committed or i'm lazy or i'm you know you know pick your favorite you know way that we <laughs> that we that we not nicely describe ourselves and our commitment to our work right and so I think as teams and as leaders, you can get around that by having clear, open dialogue and communication. And we talk about this in the book because things like that also help build relationships. If I know what matters to you and you know what matters to me, we're gonna be much better at not only supporting each other and helping each other kind of set boundaries and hold each other accountable, but we're gonna know how to communicate better with one another. And really that's, I mean, it's it, it sounds really simple, but it's not <laughs> because right. if it was really simple, we'd do it and we're not doing it very well. <laughs> right. Your statement about clarity makes perfect sense. <laughs> I've never thought about that, but it's you're exactly right. And we don't have clarity for most workplaces on what the expectations are. And I do think that's a main place where the problem's stemming. But I can't help but feel, or I have felt in the past, <laughs> that some employers don't want to give clarity because they know they're getting extra work out of us, maybe. Is that wrong to say? That line of thinking actually doesn't accomplish what they may believe it's going to accomplish. So first, um, you know, involving your workforce in decisions that get made around how they work is incredibly powerful. <laughs> it creates engagement. It creates loyalty. Everybody wants to have a voice. They want to be heard, right? And, and here's the other part about that. Asking your workforce what they need or what they want doesn't always and i think part of the fear on the part on on the part of leadership is that if we ask and we can't deliver then is it is it worse is it better to just not ask right and the answer to that is all of the research will show that it is it's actually better to ask even if you can't deliver you know because you might be able you might not be able to deliver everything that the workforce wants but you can probably deliver some of it but the value of just asking you know everybody wants to you know wants to be heard they want to know that they that they have a voice and that their voice matters especially in the workplace so the value of just asking the question mm -hmm. goes a really long way the other i think kind of fallacy in 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 what you're asking is that you know, if if an if a employer is trying to eke out every ounce of productivity from their workforce by not being clear around what the expectations are related to when, where, and how we work, or how we engage and how we use technology, or the value of creating a workforce that that really promotes strong relationships, the issue is that you know 
activity doesn't equal productivity. <laughs> so so yeah, just because yeah. I'm online and emailing at 1 a.m., I would, I mean, when I get an email from somebody that's it in the middle of the night, the first thing I do is look at where they're, where they're located <laughs> to understand their time zone. The second thing I do is write back and say, I'm happy to help you or answer your question. But the first thing I need you to do is tell me why you're sending me an email at 1am. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Because you know, working at 1am, you know, like you're sub-optimizing the health of that employee, but you're also, the risk is huge for an organization. The risk that that person's going to make a mistake, the risk that their work is not, you know, their best work because they are exhausted and burnt out and tired. Um, you know, I mean, and so there's so many downstream impacts of saying, well, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to be clear about this because we want people, we want to eke out every last minute of somebody's you know, of somebody's day with us or eke out every last ounce of productivity. Productivity starts to significantly decrease after about 46 hours per week of work. <laughs> wow. And there's tons of research to back that up. And so, um, you know, I think that I, I think that that is a is a myth. It's a workplace myth. And I also think when we talk about work workplace myths and work style myths in our book, I think the number one work style myth or workplace myth is that the workforce doesn't want to work work hard. That's a huge myth. Right. People yeah. don't come to work to be lazy, right? Like people want to be productive. They want to add value. Um, they want to do something that they perceive, you know, has meaning and benefit to their employer and the world at large. And so people don't come to work to be lazy on large part, in large part. And so I think giving the workforce the autonomy to make some of these decisions, you will actually see, um, work product go up, you know, well-being go up, engagement go up, all all of the indicators that we look like look at go up when you actually give the workforce a little bit of autonomy to make some of these decisions for themselves. Meeting your workforce where they are, right? Understanding for us at Deloitte, we have four generations in our workforce, right? And the needs of the different generations in some ways are the same, but in a lot of ways are different. You know, if you have you have a lot of, of, of your workforce that is, you know, this is their first job or their second job or they're starting a family or buying a home, you know, all the way through how do you support your workforce up to um, and getting them ready for retirement. And also, I think, you know, a forgotten segment of that vast population is sometimes the people that are mid-career because we just make the assumption that, okay, they're mid-career, they're firing on all cylinders, you know, they've gotten through kind of the, you know, the early days of figuring out what this, you know, work is all about. <laughs> they're right. leading teams, right? Um, you know, team leaders need love too. Team leaders, you know, leaders are human beings too. And so looking at the, the breadth of your workforce and making sure that you are supporting them in ways that are meaningful and meaningful to them. So I think the pivot and the shift kind of caused by COVID, um, certainly it, it's, it's really interesting because um, a couple months before, I think in November of 2019, we did an external marketplace survey to understand workplace flexibility. 
And what came out of that survey was that the majority of people that participated in the survey said that their employer offered flexible work arrangements, but that most people didn't take advantage of them because of the stigma associated with it. Oh. And so if I work remotely or I work flexibly, somehow I'm seen as lazy or less committed or, you know, the, the kind of all the different things that, you know, perhaps you would think of if you think about working flexibly or remotely. I think what the pandemic has done for people that were in jobs that could work remotely is completely remove <laughs> that stigma. Now, I would argue that um, we have worked, you know, like it's gone completely, like it, the, the, the pendulum has swung too far, right? Meaning, you know, if we were worried about people yes. not being productive when they work remotely, we've been overproductive <laughs> yes. to the point of, to the point of burnout, right? Where so many people are experiencing the fatigue and symptoms of burnout from from just the constant connection and and I think you know what we've learned at Deloitte and we talk a lot about this in the book is the importance of social connection and social relationships in the workplace and in our lives and then the role that they play and when that that gets removed um, you know I think organization part of part of the great resignation again is that people people's experiences at work for the last 18 months for the people that have been working remotely are largely, you know, video calls and a paycheck. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's hard to understand, it's hard to experience or participate in the culture of an organization and build meaningful relationships in a, in an all remote world. Now, can relationships be sustained and maintained in a virtual world absolutely but what we've found is especially for people that are new to the organization building new relationships is very difficult in an all virtual world and so for us you know our go forward plan is hybrid um and you know really gathering at times we call them moments that matter you know at the times in someone's you know, career and the times during their month, during their week, whatever it looks like um, for them, that it really matters for them to be face to face and in person with other uh, with other human beings. Um, and, and also based on role and based on need, you know, some people need more flexible work at certain times in their lives. Um, than others, but really, you know, I keep saying the future of work is flexible. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, what hybrid looks like is going to probably be different for every organization and every team. And I think it should be because it really depends on the type of work that the team is doing and, and leaving it, get, leaving it up to them as to when it's most important for them to be co-located together. Do you feel like Jen, that you know, hybrid or some some other version of something that works for, you know, different teams at companies is kind of what we might need to really embrace in order to slow or even reverse the the so-called great resignation. I, I think that that's definitely a part of it, right? Because I think, um, you know, for you know, along with the great resignation, I think they're calling it the great migration, right? Mm -hmm. So people have moved, <laughs> um, they've moved their families to different locations that are better for them and or their families during the pandemic, um, for whatever reason, to either be closer to family because it's more economically viable because they don't want to be in a big city. So I think organizations that have people tied 
to offices in large cities are, you know, I, you know, I think that, that again, kind of going back to this hybrid model, um, you know, where you're, we talked about autonomy. So you're giving the workforce the, um, the opportunity to make choices for themselves and their lives and their family about what matters to them. Um, and, and, and they are still able to keep and maintain a job um, that, that is meaningful to them, right? And so not dictating where somebody lives or, you know, how often, you know, they have to come into an office. I think for a, a good portion of the workforce, that really matters. Um, and so I think that that is a, a, a piece of, you know, the great resignation and why people are making the decisions that they're making. Yeah, I mean, I can speak to that anecdotally in the sense that, you know, I grew up outside Philadelphia and and my mom still, both of my parents still live there. But my mom has a bunch of friends who um, they live in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia or they live um, by the beach in South Jersey. And a lot of their grown children lived in downtown Philadelphia or in Manhattan. And when yep. when the pandemic hit, they moved in with their parents because they needed help with the kids um, because kids were out of school. They still needed to work and they were working full-time right. jobs. And now because their jobs have stayed remote um, or they've had the ability to, you know, financially do it is that they, they're not living with their parents anymore, but they're moving down the street and they're staying. Um, and, and my mom has like three or four friends that, you know, this is, like shifted this just this past summer um and I just think it's so fascinating because then on the other hand I feel like there there's so much talk about going back to work right and and going back into the office and I'm like well what are these folks gonna do like you know for some of them it's a two it would be a two-hour commute one way just just right. to work but the 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 personal life values that they've gotten from this shift have been so huge. I completely agree. And actually I had a, a colleague of mine um, <laughs> send me a great email a, a few weeks ago that, that was, you know, kind of a, a challenge to the whole notion of, or the language around work-life integration and why, whether it's work-life integration, work-life balance, work-life fit, whatever you call it, why work always comes first. And so his challenge to me was, why isn't it life-work integration? Why aren't we integrating work into our life? Why do we have to integrate life into our work? <laughs> um, and so I, I, I didn't have a great answer for him other than you're absolutely right. <laughs> I mean, I think if I peel back the, the thinking on work-life integration is because for most of us, we do struggle with how we integrate. We put work, we, we put work first, right? That's kind mm -hmm. of how we were raised to, to or trained, to your point earlier, Briarly, um, you know, to kind of think of work first and then how do we integrate the pieces of our life that matter to us into our ability to get good work done. But his point is, you know, light, and it, it's something that I've always said, but actually never really thought about the language around work-life integration and shifting to life-work integration is, you know, how, you know, you have one life, right? There's not work and life. You have a life and 
work is a meaningful part of your life if that's if that's what you choose. Um, and so it shouldn't be, you know, to kind of the, the way we talk about it actually kind of puts them at odds with each other. Like you can either work or you can have a life, but mm -hmm. you can't have both. Mm -hmm. And we really need to change the mindset around that. And so I have started to shift to say, to shift away from work-life integration and actually call it life-work integration because life absolutely should come first for all of us. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I think we need to change our mindset and our behaviors around that. And I think that's part of what you're seeing in, you know, in the great resignation and the people that have moved or relocated or migrated somewhere else um, during the pandemic. I remember when Briarly emailed you, I guess a few weeks, maybe a month <laughs> or so ago about being about us interviewing you and she got an out of office reply that you were out of office for the weekend. She said, oh, and she does not reply when she's on vacation. And I thought, wow, I need to be more like her. Oh, yeah. So she was saying, you know, look for an email back from her next week, but she does not reply on vacation. I was like, why do I do that sometimes? Well, and, and, and it's interesting because I used to reply on vacation um, and I used to be, and we talk about the importance of role modeling in the book um, as a leader, but also as a colleague. Yeah. Um, I used to be the leader that said to my team, I don't, you don't need to check email on vacation. You don't need to respond to email on vacation. I'm going to do it because I don't like coming back to you know to the quote unquote office and having to go through thousands and thousands of emails i find that to be more stressful than just replying to them while i'm on vacation and that was the story i told myself <laughs> even though i knew all the benefits of disconnecting i convinced myself that you know i didn't need to disconnect that i would be fine if i checked email what changed me was my team coming to me and saying Hey, Jen, we hear you and we hear the story that you're telling yourself, but you also tell us that we don't have to do it. And so you're sending us mixed messages. You're saying we don't have to do it, but if we ever aspire to be in a role like yours, what you're showing us is that we actually do have to check oh, email wow. when I'm on, when, I, when I'm on vacation. And that kind of stopped me in my tracks. <laughs> to say, okay, I, you know, if for no other reason, I need to role model the behavior that I'm encouraging others to take. And so my team is wonderful. We have lots of psychological safety and they hold me accountable on all kinds of things because I, even though I have the title of chief wellbeing officer, I am far from perfect. <laughs> I screw it up daily. <laughs> <laughs> and I have an amazing team that holds me accountable. But that's what we talk about in the book, too, is trusted teams, like having a team where you can have those conversations to say, hey, you said one thing, but you're doing something totally different. And so therefore, I'm confused. Like, what do you when you talk about being you know, clear as kind, like, what is the actual expectation here? Um, and so that's why I don't check email on vacation. And I mean, that's a lot. One of the major reason why I don't check email on vacation anymore is because is because of that, but also just because we now know of the significant benefits and need for all of us to disconnect from our technology and how that does truly impact when we come back, you know, our ability to innovate and be creative. I and mean, if you're always connected, um, you really have a hard time kind of, you know, getting out of your own head and being able to, you know, see the world in a, in a different way. And, you know, boredom is where innovation comes from, right? Yeah. <laughs> but we've lost it. We've lost the art of being bored, right? I mean, we were, we were kids, our parents were like, you know, if you said you were bored, they're like, well, go outside and build a fort. And that's what you did. 
It's true. It's very true. Yeah. Not just at Deloitte, but I know that you do a lot of, uh, you know, you share a lot of this amazing work that you've done and advice through a couple of channels. So you have your podcast, uh, the Work Well podcast, which uh, you can get on Apple Podcasts or pretty much anywhere else where you Yeah, like any podcaster, yeah. Podcast. <laughs> yeah. And you're a regular contributor to Thrive Global, which is a very, very cool platform. Tell us um, what you predominantly focus on there, on Thrive Global. Yeah, um, I mean, all, all aspects of well-being. I'm the work life or life work <laughs> integration editor at large. Um, so I do, I do write a monthly thrive guide. Um, and it's really, um, kind of my, anything that's on my mind. And so we have a, a, a thrive guide coming out, um, that is called death to reply to all. <laughs> oh. And I will, I will leave you, I'll leave <laughs> you with that. I'll leave that kind of, uh, you know, cliffhanger there. I'm sure you can assume what that means. Um, but getting much better at our, uh, digital, uh, auto reply habits. Um, but yeah, just kind of anything that's on my mind in the space of work and well-being is what I focus on at Thrive Global. Well, could you do a follow-up that says, <laughs> let's do death to group texts? <laughs> <laughs> I would like that one in my personal life. Specifically um, family group text, right, maybe? Right, right, yeah. You can, you can mute them. Right, exactly. You can mute them. Let's do a, let's do a tutorial on Did how to mute morning. those. Yeah. So um, Jen also puts out some awesome information on LinkedIn that she either authors or just shares. Like, you are always yeah. sharing great, great articles. Where else can our listeners find you? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, Jen Fisher, and then I'm on Twitter and Instagram at JenFish23. And so those are, as you mentioned, the podcast. And so those are the best ways to kind of tune in to, to what I'm doing or to connect with me. Awesome. Well, thank you so thank you. much, Jen. Uh, this thank has you. been really, really wonderful. And of course, you know, ev whether you are working in a regular corporate style place or not the book work better together is it's very eye-opening and it is um it just for me it just raises a lot of awareness in in just how I even interact with some of my clients as a freelancer so highly highly recommend the book yeah we'll have thank all the links much. for <laughs> all of Jen's things we will within yeah. the show notes awesome thank you both so much thank, thank you, you Jen have a great weekend you too take care bye bye-bye Thank you so much for joining us for the Happy Eating Podcast. I'm Briarly Horton. And I'm Carolyn Williams. If you liked this week's episode, then don't forget to rate and leave us a review on iTunes. And be sure to hit the subscribe button so you'll never miss a new episode. We can't wait to have you back at our table next week for a brand new episode. Bye. Bye. The contents discussed in the Happy Eating Podcast, such as advice, studies, text, graphics, images, and other material discussed or presented on the site or podcast are for informational purposes only. Content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Happy Eating Podcast. If you are in crisis or think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. 
If you're having suicidal thoughts, call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 8255, to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you are located outside the United States, call your local emergency line immediately.